Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. Well, hello there. I'm your communication coach, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Thanks for listening. Talk about talk is where you can learn to communicate more effectively so you can advance your career and improve your relationships with everyone around you, even your competitors. There's a lot jam-packed into this episode, so fasten your seatbelt. If you're an executive seeking to improve the competitiveness of your firm, if you're personally feeling a bit competitive with a colleague, if you're an economist, a marketer, a tech wizard, a coder, I promise this episode will appeal to you and leave you thinking about competition in a new way. I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Meki McCauley, whose PhD in business focused on open source strategy and who currently serves as the senior open source strategy officer at IBM. I learned a lot from Meki, and you will too. As usual, I'll summarize our conversation briefly at the end of the podcast, and you can easily access the summary and the transcript in the show notes at talkabouttalk.com. Towards the end of this interview, you'll hear Meki thank me explicitly for the show notes. He prefers reading show notes versus listening to podcasts since he processes information so very quickly. Yes, Meki is a super smart guy, as you'll see in a few minutes. Before we get to the interview, I'm going to share with you a brief primer on competition. Here we go. The concept of competition has been defined and examined by psychologists, economists, anthropologists, biologists, sociologists, and educators. The phenomenon of competition applies to our natural world, to ourselves as individuals, to businesses, to teams, to sports. I could go on. A synonym for competition is rivalry. But rivalry over what? Well, resources. The resource could be status. It could be a promotion. It could be ranking, gold, silver, and bronze. It could be customer revenue. It could be profit. It could be power, and so on. We've all heard that healthy competition is a good thing. It encourages us to strive and excel. But competition is not healthy when people are deceitful or ruthless. How do you know when competition is healthy or not? The line is drawn where people resort to hurting others to help themselves. Have you ever been in that situation? I know I have. I can think of a few specific examples from work. Once when I was a brand manager, and then when I was in academia. It is mind-boggling to me that a colleague would strive to make me look bad, to hurt me, so that they would benefit. But unfortunately, it happens. Here's the thing. If someone at your work is displaying highly competitive behaviors that hurt you in some way, there are two possible reasons for this. It's either the culture or the person. If it's the culture or the environment, you probably need to get out, unless you want to expend your energy trying to change that culture. If it's the person, consider one of three diagnoses. Narcissism, lack of confidence, or a scarcity mentality. If you're dealing with a narcissist or a sociopath, then you probably need to get into protection mode, right? Narcissists seek power and control. They can put on an act to achieve their objectives, but they can be ruthless. It is not personal. It's all about them. But you should keep in mind that chances are it's not narcissism. Narcissists comprise just 1% of our population. There are two other more likely explanations, both of which you can deal with. Lack of confidence and or a focus on scarcity. So your colleague may suffer from a lack of self-esteem or a fragile ego. 
Or they may be desperately focused on getting the biggest piece of that scarce, limited pie. You can work with this. You can explicitly communicate and implicitly model your intentions to promote mutual benefit. You can adopt an open strategy or an open source strategy. Are you familiar with open source strategy? As you'll hear from our guest expert, Dr. Meki McCauley, open source strategy originated with source code, as in computer programming. Here's the definition. Open source strategy is dependent upon collaboration between individuals and organizations, including competitors, to develop a collective good that is useful to all of them, possibly in different ways, such that no single individual or organization can restrict the use of that good by others. Got it? Well, let me introduce Meki now so you can learn directly from him. Meki McCauley is an open source strategy expert with over 10 years experience implementing open source strategies in government, enterprise, and not-for-profit environments. He started out with degrees in computer engineering, he's a professional engineer, and psychology, a diverse and unique combination, right? As you'll hear, Meki advocates diversity and inclusiveness. A few years ago, Meki earned his PhD in strategic management from the Schulich School of Business at York University. In his dissertation, he applied strategy theories to open source to create and test the first empirical model of how organizations can save money and grow revenue through participation in open source. Currently, Meki is the senior open source strategy officer at IBM. In his free time, Meki also fosters cats. He is a true renaissance man with diverse interests and we're very fortunate to have him here. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Meki. My pleasure. Can you tell us first a little bit about your dissertation research and what you studied there? Sure. The traditional perspective is that one can't make money by giving anything away. You have to control it tightly. That's kind of the foundation of strategy all the way back to uh, Ricardian Rents, who said it's about controlling a specific location and that exclusivity is how you make money. My dissertation uh, was aiming to prove empirically for the first time, as far as I'm aware, that that's not true. We've theorized that that's not true for decades. So my dissertation looked specifically at how companies participated in the Mozilla ecosystem. Mozilla is best known for the Firefox web browser. Right. And what they potentially got out of giving away all of these contributions, even to their competitors. Hmm. That reminds me, I know someone who works at an online publishing company and they give away a remarkable amount of the content that they're publishing, and yet that is their revenue stream. So I am fascinated to learn more about how this works. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do in your job day to day at IBM? Companies have been doing open source as a business for more than 20 years, and one of the top contributing companies has been IBM. IBM is more than 100 years old and has reinvented itself many, many times. Recently, they took that to the next level and acquired the first open by default company called Red Hat. Red Hat's business model was... All of our software is open source. You can download it at no cost. You can use it. 
but that's not where the value is. The value is maybe you want support for that. Maybe you want to develop specific features. Maybe you want us to integrate it with your business with customizations. And they demonstrated over a 20 year period that they could be a $2 billion annual revenue company. So doing Red Hat that. was around for 20 years? Red Hat was around for more than 20 years. It was founded around 1995, 96 by a gentleman named Bob Young, who's now the owner of Lulu.com, an open source publishing business. Uh, Funny you should mention that. So he's repeating it. So he's right. repeating it. And he also owns the Hamilton Tiger Cats because okay. he's a football fan. Oh, so obviously there's <laughs> some money in this open source strategy if he's owning. Yes. Uh, so team. he sold Red Hat for an undisclosed amount of money around 2000, uh, stayed involved for another year or two, and then it IPO'd at about $16 US a share. Uh, when IBM bought it, it was at $190 US a share. So from 2001 to 2018, that's a, considered a very, very good growth from, uh, from IPO. So investors started believing in it, but they thought it was an anomaly. And then IBM acquired them last year for $34 billion, uh, one of the largest acquisitions in history of any industry that turned heads. Boardrooms in Fortune 500 companies suddenly said, okay, if IBM's buying into this open source thing, that's okay, it's real, it's not just you know a fad. Uh, what they don't know is that their engineers in their companies have been using open source strategically for a very, very long time. It's just the people in the boardrooms had no idea. They didn't care about how that technical stuff was being done. It was irrelevant to them. So what we're seeing now is a merging between technology and engineering concerns and business strategy executive concerns. Right. And that's where I come in. So IBM is global and each country does some of their own machinations around how they implement strategy. In the U.S., of course, there's, there's sort of the, the main focus typically, and Red Hat is an American company. Uh, but up here in Canada, we have a, a different currency, which affects our ability to bring in consultants from the U.S. And so what IBM Canada smartly decided, humbly speaking, was to bring me in uh, to assist in building a Canada open source strategy for IBM Canada. All of whom are IBM clients who are starting to ask about open source and how we can build that up. And they realized that they didn't have that strategy competency in Canada. So they brought me on to help build that. Mm. So that's my role. I sit between engineering technology and executive management. And I translate between the two. Because I'm a professional computer engineer, I can put on jeans and I can put on nerdy t-shirts and I can talk to the engineers. Or because I have a PhD in business, I can put on a suit and tie and talk with the executives. And translating between those two is a, is a fairly new skill set because they are closer than they ever were before. Historically, business came up with a need, tossed it over a wall to engineering technology and said, make it happen. Now the two are closely integrated in terms of determining priorities, in part because the cycles of development of technology are faster than they ever were. We're no longer talking about 10-year strategies. We're talking about three-year agile 
strategies. And that's where you come in as a huge value add because you're helping them translate the language of the strategy or the corporate department versus the technology and the engineering. And you're enabling them to communicate with each other more effectively and certainly more quickly. Yes. And collaborate because historically they did not see that their separate roles were related to one another at all. Mm. Um, We had uh, silos in companies where they were, you know, these vertical functions that were very divorced. Uh, They received a high level mandate and then they didn't talk. And in fact, maybe they even deliberately excluded each other. And so it's... Part communication, but... (laughs) They're competitive, right? Which is kind of the point here. Exactly. Part internal integration. The old fighting for funding in the silos of enterprise is just not a thing anymore. Uh, Or at least if it's still a thing, that company is going down, not up. Right. Can you share with the listeners some other organizations who are dedicated to and employing open source strategy? Most of the Fortune 500 companies are implementing open source strategies. Really? Maybe only 70% of them know it, though. Oh, okay. There is an organization called the Linux Foundation, which is a not-for-profit that coordinates a lot of open source activity uh, in the world. And it does an annual survey of the largest companies to assess their open source strategies. I think it found that 77%, something in that range, are using it and are extracting value from it. The biggest ones are famous names. They're Google. Google's the number one open source contributor on the planet. Okay. Uh, number two is now IBM since it acquired Red Hat. So yep. IBM, Red Hat together. Number three is Microsoft, which surprises a lot of people because Microsoft 20 years ago was a very different company. It was the, quote, big evil of closed source software business models. And it's completely turned that around. Microsoft has several thousand open source projects that it curates and it pays its employees to develop. And it even famously open sourced last year or two years ago, it's a visual studio development environment to develop Windows programs. This was famously incredibly expensive that people had to do, you know, this huge expenditure in order to start developing programs for Windows. And now you start from an open source perspective. So this is where we see a lot of small software companies popping up. You can literally sit in a Starbucks, use their Wi-Fi, use all open source tools and develop software that you then put up on a store to be sold without huge capital investment. Right. That wasn't true 20 years ago. And uh, That's it, really it, interesting. I actually yeah. didn't know that about Microsoft. What about Apple? They raise a lot of questions about where the line is. Right. So people don't know this, but Apple's operating system on its MacBooks is on its phone is based on an open source core called BSD. And people like it in open source communities because if they don't want to use the visual interface, they can open a terminal window and use the text-based terminal interface exactly if they were using a Linux server Mm. on all Macs. So they've appealed to that techie engineer community while also providing a beautiful front end and nicely designed and brushed metal, but also the visuals of the device. Oh, I see. But and the interface as well, um, so that there's a a comfort between the non-technical users and the technical users on the same platform. No one's really ever done that before. It was Mm. usually one or the other. But behind the scenes, there's 
there's a lot of questions about um, standards and are they playing games, pushing standards towards their own benefit? And Apple's, of course, not the only one doing that. Right. So open source relies on open standards in the same way that we talk about um, ISO standards, International Standard Organization, for a whole range of industries. We have standards for technology. They have to be very open and they have to be very transparent or companies will stay away from them because they're afraid of one company gaining control. Right. And Apple historically has manipulated that to their benefit and to the detriment of others. So I probably should have asked this at the very beginning, but can you define open source? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure you can. <laughs> there is no single definition. Okay. Open source means at least five different things depending on the industry you're talking to. Okay. Now I created one that I cobbled together from a bunch of different academic sources, open source, and it's actually open source strategy okay. or open strategy if you want to drop the source. And why that matters is because the historical roots of open source is software. And so we think about the source code. That's where the word comes from. But in the past 15 years, it's evolved well beyond software. Right. And so when we talk about open source strategy, the word source is a bit of a legacy word. Yeah. And so some people have used it in open strategy. But open strategy bridges into other areas. So I'll give you a long answer. The short definition of open source strategy is a strategy that is dependent upon collaboration between individuals and organizations, including competitors, to develop a collective good that is useful to all of them in possibly different ways, such that no single individual organization can restrict the use of that good by others. Okay. So when we think about business strategies, we can use all of the traditional business strategies we think of, except making money based on the ability to restrict. Restrict is really a key word there. Exactly. And so the open source definition, which is curated by an organization called the Open Source Initiative, they have a list of what qualifies to use the term open source. They have a trademark on mm. it and they sort of accredit. It's a trademark term. It is trademark term, yes. And they accredit organizations who say they want to be open source or they have an open source software based on a set of criteria. And I'm not going to listen off the top of my head because they're long and yeah. they're a little bit quasi-legal. Yeah. Um, but you can look that up, uh, opensource.org, I believe, uh, and read the criteria of what that means. And you'll see it aligns very well with business principles. And there's a history there with another organization called the Free Software Foundation that predates the open source initiative, who was focused a lot more on the social benefits of not restricting software use. And they excluded businesses from participating in that in a bit of anti-establishment type social movement where they felt that businesses that were large corporate entities were evil by default and therefore could not possibly engage in open source or free software in an ethical manner. The open source initiatives was formed out of what used to be known as Netscape, which no longer exists. There was an early competitor for web browsers back when it was just Netscape and Internet Explorer in the 90s, mm -hmm. um, who realized that 
participation by large organizations was absolutely essential for legitimacy and growth. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't find a way to encourage businesses to be ethical and give them guidelines on how to do that, then they would just be lost and do whatever they wanted. So there's been a long time division between the Free Software Foundation and the Open Source Initiative. And the Open Source Initiative has largely won in terms of mind share in that they have a lot more active participation around them. But back to the definition, the Free Software Foundation has much more restrictive definitions of what they view qualifies as free software. And notably, they use the term free to mean free as in liberty, not free as in no cost. Uh, okay. And that is an ongoing source of confusion for the past 25 yeah. years. So yeah. in French, they say libre software, logiciel libre, which is less confusing. Right. Interesting. Yeah. There's a language difference. There's there. a language difference there. Everybody understands open to some degree, but they assume that means no cost, which is not true. In mm. fact, neither definition insists that it be at no cost. Both the Free Software Foundation definition and the Open Source Initiative definition say you may absolutely sell it. But that's frequently misunderstood. Even to the collaborators that input to it, that produced it? The issue is not how you obtain the compiled software. So this gets back to the source code versus the compiled software. And compiling is the process of taking human-readable instructions and turning them into machine-readable language. Mm -hmm. And so when we run a program on our computer, it's machine-readable, but if you open it, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros. It's not readable to a human. That's the process of compiling. Historically, Microsoft and other closed-source companies would distribute a program only in compiled form. You could not see the source code behind it, which also meant you couldn't audit it, you couldn't verify it, and if it was doing something secretly that you didn't know was going on, there was no way for you to find out. Right, you couldn't verify. You couldn't verify. That's why open source is uh, used by the Department of Defense uh, in the U.S., by DARPA, by the U.S. military, by uh -huh. all top security organizations because of its auditability. And there's the frequent misunderstanding that open source is less secure because you can see it, but in fact the exact opposite is true because the ability to see it allows you to verify that there are no problems. Uh, so backing that back is a real mind shift, right? From traditional strategy. Correct. Yes. So is part of what you do to convince all of the stakeholders that you're working with just to play nicely? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And Historically, they didn't think they could get along with one another. So one of my good friends who works at Google, who I won't name, calls me a, quote, marketroid, unquote. Wow. He is a hardcore engineer who develops engineering products for Google. And we did engineering together in the same program. But I went more towards a business angle afterwards. He went into deep coding. And he viewed for a long time everything I did as highly irrelevant. And over the irrelevant? Irrelevant. Wow. That it does not matter. But over the years, I've convinced him that good technology gets overridden by bad business decisions. Mm. And if we don't understand the other world, the most beautiful things never get released. And that's very sad for engineers. So when I talk to engineers, that's what I talk about. They say, oh, that marketing stuff is irrelevant. Well, it's irrelevant to you, but do you want your product to ever go out there for people right. to use it? Oh yeah, of course I do. Yeah, okay, well, yeah. and unless you convince these 
executives, these marketroids, that your product has value for the company, doesn't matter how good it is technically, it won't see the light of day. Mm. And then they go, oh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Okay. And then they're more receptive to these theories and ways of thinking, MBA speak, as, as we say, than they are typically before that. Before we move on, I want to ask you about coopetition. Mm. But before we do that, I was wondering, are there examples that are outside of software and maybe even outside of technology of open source, or as, as I should be saying, open strategy? Open source, open strategy, okay. yeah. We, we use them interchangeably. Okay. The list is so large now, we're actually at the point then we could do the reverse. What areas are not doing it? Can you give the listeners an an example of one that is a well-known brand where I wouldn't have thought of them being an open source strategy? Sure, sure. Every university in the world. So open source strategy actually aligns very well to the traditional academic research model. We don't even think about not publishing our research and only selling the outputs. And academics are rewarded for giving their research away for as many people in the world to see. True. They don't sell their paper publications. They get paid based on reputation effects, based on continuous new discoveries. Their reward model is very well aligned with open source. Universities who have tried to commercialize the inventions of their professors fail 98% of the time. Uh. And so much so that most universities now don't uh, claim an intellectual property stake in the inventions of their professors because mm-hmm. they realize it's not worth it. So what we call open educational resources. This is a huge industry and MIT famously pioneered it almost 10 years ago where they were not only providing the material, they were delivering the courses as a whole online for anybody to participate. Right. You just for did free. For free. Exactly. And this is exactly what we're getting at. People thought the business model of universities was people paying to sit in classrooms and receive material that they couldn't access otherwise. Turns out that's not at all true. Nobody stopped enrolling into MIT just because they could take the courses for free with the same material and the same professors online. Nothing changed. So the value wasn't where they thought it was. Uh, Turns out the value is in the piece of paper that says you have a degree from MIT. That you don't get if you participate online unless you're a registered student through the normal fashion. And so understanding where in your business model is the actual value is an exercise that not enough organizations do. And frequently I sit down with companies, clients of IBM, and as soon as I say open source, they say, I'm going to give away my competitive advantage if I do that. And I say, okay, what's your competitive advantage? 98% of the time, they don't have an answer. And if they do have an answer, it is not an answer that they have actually analyzed. It's just made up off the top of their mm. head. So my first exercise in open source strategy is conventional business competitive advantage analysis. Uh, it's not specific to open source. So the Michael Porter five forces kind of deal? I have a lot to say about Michael Porter yeah. and the five forces, <laughs> but sure that's a very did. different topic. Yeah. Um, Michael Porter and the five forces was coined in 1980. Yeah. And it's, let's say it's pre-internet. Yes. So I, I'm not a big fan of models, to be honest. Um, I apply the component of the model that fits to the specific customer. It's more There's customized. N- it's more customized. There is no single model that applies to all use cases. So before we move on, mm. is there another non-technology mm-hmm. focused sure. industry that you can... Uh, open architecture is a big area. Ah. So things like sustainable design, modular design, we are seeing it in uh, materials analysis. So creating
creating new materials with specific properties. Companies that are winning the contracts to build specific things don't make money off of the proprietariness of the materials they use. So they're highly engaged in open material design. We are seeing it in- Is there a common thread here? I feel like there must be a way of describing it that you've, that yeah. you've done. Give right? away everything <laughs> and make money without restricting. That's the common thread of open strategy. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in, that's gonna start with a cost savings in that you're not spending money curating and maintaining things that don't matter. Uh. And most companies are holding on to a huge amount of stuff that's costing them money that is not adding value to their organization. So it's a focusing exercise by letting go. So this is a, an innate human tendency though, hmm. right? Of it's protectionism. A it's corporate hoarding, if you will. <laughs> corporate hoarding. Can you now share with us the definition of coopetition? Coopetition was the idea that in traditional strategic analysis, your competitors can also be your allies. We used to classify them separately, and we now understand, especially with large companies, that that's just not discrete. So the idea that you can ally with someone who you're actively competing against in another area or even in the same area as coopetition. Okay. It's really that simple. When you get to the nuances of it, it's the idea that we're never fighting about the same piece of pie. There's in pretty much every industry enough to go around if we think smartly about it. And the goal with coopetition is instead of handing out different pieces of pie between us to increase the size of the pie, and then everybody gets more. And we're nowhere near the limits of where that's not practical in any human industry right now. Right, okay. So I want, I want to talk a little bit more about the factors associated with competition, coopetition, and communication. And I keep thinking of collusion, and I also keep thinking of OPEC. Collusion is funny because there's a lot of history in the tech industry with antitrust, and it's not exactly the same thing, but it's the idea of monopolies exerting control to the detriment of end users, consumers. Right. And if we back that up to early business theory, early economic theory, people don't realize that the foundation of economics in the modern world is the notion that corporations, as they are structured, enable value creation to the benefit of consumers. Economics are always structured to ensure that the average citizen, the average consumer gets the lion's share of the benefit. The fact that we have failed at that to some degree in modern capitalism is not so much a failing of the fundamentals of economics as it is the implementation of those principles. Antitrust was the idea that companies that grow so big in a single industry that they control the appropriation of value between consumer and corporate interests must be reined in by the government. Yeah. Microsoft was famously charged for antitrust violations in the late 90s, around the same time Netscape turned into Mozilla and open source started. Interesting. The idea was Microsoft started packaging Internet Explorer, an early web browser, with its Microsoft Windows operating system. And the US government said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> 
you have the dominant market position for Windows as the desktop personal computer operating system by adding on this other product in it in quotes other industry because back then the internet was this new thing that wasn't integrated in our lives like it is today, we don't want you to be able to get control of that. And this is very important because at that point of time, Microsoft almost did have control of the actual whole internet. What people don't know about that is behind the scenes, most of the servers running internet websites were on a platform called IIS, which was run by Microsoft. Okay. And there was no alternative. So Microsoft very nearly cornered the internet as a whole, running all of the backend servers and the front-end access Internet Explorer. This antitrust movement by the U.S. government reigned that in, and two big things happened. Netscape turned into Mozilla, which became an open-source web browser, which very rapidly grew in market share for the front-end. And the Apache organization created the Apache web server, which is the open-source web server equivalent of IIS, that now today runs 93% of the Internet, oh. the back-end. Okay. And so if you look at websites today, Microsoft does not run most websites on the back-end. Apache does, yeah. and it's managed by a not-for-profit organization called the Apache Foundation. Hmm. All of that happened exactly at the time that Microsoft got charged with antitrust. Hmm. Many years later, Apple would do the exact same thing, even more brazenly than Microsoft did, and did not suffer antitrust charges because technology had evolved to a point that the internet was so integrated in our lives that adding a web browser into an operating system was not considered gaining a lot of control. Mm. And so Apple actually tested those limits quite a lot with the U.S. government to see just how much it could integrate with its iTunes platform in particular. And that's where I was saying earlier, Apple was sort of a questionable open source citizen in that it would test the limits of what it could close down and put inside its wall garden that no one else could touch right while also using open source products so there's a weird yeah, thing yeah it's like they're they're integrating open source and closed source is it closed source Clo you could say closed source yes okay. they were integrating them and uh some open source licenses um, which are permissions to use a software allow that integration others explicitly don't where once you put something open source with something closed source, the closed source product becomes open source by default. Okay. And so companies are very careful with that to make sure that they're not accidentally releasing stuff they don't want to yeah. under yeah. the agreements. So how does this relate to collusion? Well, the idea of collusion is that even if a single company doesn't control the distribution of power for a given industry, if companies are not forced to compete to drive down each other's benefits, then consumers won't benefit. Open source actually is one of the favorite things of uh, collusion regulators because it's the opposite of control. Collusion still implies that the companies that are colluding control what's going on to the detriment of the consumer. But open source flips that paradigm. If you are, in quotes, colluding in open source, you're colluding in a way that's open to everybody, including people not explicitly part of a collusion agreement. So is it like an oxymoron? Open source collusion? It's, it, it's almost more laughable. It's, it's, it's more absurd. It's not quite an oxymoron. It's, 
It's that the paradigms of collusion don't even fit in here. Who are you excluding in the collusion if everything is open? Right. So the idea was then the companies that colluded would have an advantage over the, the, in, the new companies that want to join the industry who could never compete with that collusion. Uh. Well, if you're developing something that anybody can use, anybody can enter that industry. And so it's more of a shift of what is valuable than it is a shift of power. Open source is the opposite of power. It's saying we are all equal to some degree, and we can get into governance debates about who wields power behind the scenes. But the thing that we are cooperating on, nobody has exclusivity power over it. Uh -huh. So regulators love it. They want companies to be involved in this to reduce fears of collusion. Yeah. Yeah, and the regulators are the government, Typically the government and the governments yeah. know that open source leads to governments uh, value, and that's what they're trying to drive in the economy anyway. Exactly, and they see uh, value beyond just corporate revenues. They see social value. They right. see economic value. Governments are some of the biggest adopters in open source in Canada, but also in Europe and South America and U.S. We see it everywhere. So I, I can imagine Dr. Meki McCauley coming into an organization like IBM and, and its competitors and giving this lecture and saying, we can all benefit. We can drive value within our organizations and outside of our organizations using open source strategy. I'd really like to dig in now to how do we communicate that and how do we represent that in our words and our actions? One of the models that I read about when I was preparing for this interview highlighted the various factors or constructs that are necessary for competition. And I noticed two of those factors were interpersonal relationships and communication. So important. A famous personality in open source is Linus Torvalds, who's best known for uh, the inventor of the Linux operating system, which now runs just about every Fortune 500 company in the world. He is a stereotypical engineer who is very focused on the technology and not focused on relationship building. He's known to be very impatient with, quote, stupidity, unquote. And this was sustainable in the early days of open source when it was largely a community of engineers. They didn't see the relevance of social graces of communication. But now as we have more and more participants, worldwide who are diverse, in particular a better gender balance. We have more women participating in open source. It's creating a toxic atmosphere that needs to be addressed. And it is impacting companies now because companies have a stake in the success of these open source communities. And if they do not engage in the communications aspect, in the community development, growth, social aspect, the technologies do not develop because of the same blockages that we have when teams don't get along in workplaces. So, so you said if they don't engage in the communications aspect, what would the gold star of engaging in communications aspect look like? That's a really good question. Yeah. Recognizing that technology is 10% of the equation and 90% of the equation is collaboration. Mm. Helping... Um, so stating that and demonstrating that. Stating that, demonstrating, and you need to integrate you know, the soft skill practitioners in your open source strategy. If you don't, you run the risk of becoming irrelevant by virtue of focusing exclusively on the technology. Right. So this is not where I thought this conversation was going to go towards <laughs> inclusivity, but it actually makes sense. And what I'm hearing between the lines here, I guess, is that making open source part of your corporate culture is absolutely necessary for open source to actually succeed. 
Absolutely. And you have a cheat sheet. Uh, Jim Whitehurst, the CEO of Red Hat that IBM recently bought, the former largest uh, commercial open source company in the world, wrote a book called The Open Organization okay. around 2015. And at IBM, um, it's been handed out to managers and directors as a uh, instruction manual. So if you want to learn how to do this, it describes at the organization level all the things you need to do to align with the open source movement in terms of communication, in terms of hiring, in terms of marketing. And one of my colleagues was reading it and said, hmm, so the summary of this book in short form is don't be a dick to your employees. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Yes. And he's like, why and, did... And your, and your quote-unquote competitors. And your quote-unquote right? competitors. Be a good manager, director, company. Be ethical. And that will improve your business. The old standard of cutthroat business of 1950s management where you have to squeeze a stone to get blood out of it, that doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work. Okay. Let's move on to the five rapid fire questions. The first question is, what are your pet peeves? Uh, animal cruelty, can't stand of course, but an unexpected one amongst people who love animals, there's this obsession to share animal cruelty pictures to get people upset about this on Facebook. And I can't- Emotional I, manipulation. I, I can't stand it. We're all already upset about animal cruelty. Putting gore on my Facebook feed doesn't make me want to do more. It makes me want to unfollow you. Right. Don't, don't do it. It's just, it's, it does not help. Huge pet peeve. Yeah, I thought you were going to say yeah. people that don't cooperate. Oh, well, I could, that one just came to mind. Okay, second question. What type of learner are you? Visual, auditory, kinesthetic, or some other kind of learner? I'm very kinesthetic. More recently, as I become more verbal, I've moved to a bit more reading learning. I hate learning by videos and being talked at. Oh, really? <laughs> Drives me crazy. Everything now is videos, even online training courses yeah. for all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Sit and watch a video. I can't stand it. I would rather a text environment where I can move at my own pace. What about listening to a podcast? Like, same thing. I would actually prefer to read a transcript of a podcast oh. than the podcast itself. Oh. But that's a personal thing because of the speed at which I absorb information and the speed at which it's communicated is typically too slow for me. Okay, well, I'm going to do a plug now. Every single one of my podcast episodes has show notes with the highlights and then the full transcript of the interview. I love it. That's perfect yeah. for people like me and for people with disabilities. Right. I have right. colleagues who love yeah. that. So I so think that's So when I was tremendous. trying to decide whether or not to do that, that was one of the things. So valuable. Yeah. Question number three, introvert or extrovert? I am a natural introvert, fake extrovert. Love so it. So part of my translating from engineering to business was uh, overriding some of my natural, slightly autistic tendencies and faking extroversion because it makes people more comfortable, but it's really draining. And so I eventually have to go and hide yeah. uh, by myself to recharge because I'm naturally an introvert. I think you're also very self-aware. Question number four, communication preference for personal conversations. Uh, I prefer text. I find that it gives me time to communicate. So uh, particularly asynchronous where I can respond where I'm in the right state of mind, but that doesn't align very well with most people. So I naturally adapt to what's best for most people just mm. because communication is a two-way street. That is a really interesting answer. I have to tell you the most common answer that I get to that question is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Most people say I prefer face-to-face, -face, but I understand we're moving quickly. We are communicating asynchronously, as you said. And we so have all these rules about uh, body language that for those further along on the autism spectrum is a lot harder. So I learn rules about body language and the 
such by uh, script, by memorization, by practice. They don't come to me naturally. And so what you and I are interacting with is uh, two decades of practice. Wow. If we had met 20 years ago, I looked a lot like the stereotypical engineer who did not convey body language very well and so was frequently misunderstood. There's so much communication through body language that we don't understand. And huh. Well, that's kind of what Talk About Talk is all about, right? Is all the communication it. skills across whatever dimension it is that we're communicating. I want every single open source engineer to take a course on that. Question number five, podcast or blog or email newsletter that you find yourself recommending the most? None of them. I believe that the best information source is curated aggregation. What does that mean? You will never be fully satisfied by a single source based on the bias of that source. Instead, decide what you're interested in and use some form of tool that will curate around that topic for you. Then you get a diversity of opinions for that topic. You have a broader view. It avoids the echo chamber effect and it keeps you a lot more current. You're not waiting for an update from other people. So examples that I use for technical stuff, Slashdot, which is one of the oldest technical news sources, about 20 years old, which in internet time is forever. And uh, one that I use for more social is Reddit. Reddit is the number three most visited website on the internet. Yep. And it, uh, it's brand is the front page of the internet. What people don't know is you can very tightly curate what shows up on your front page from a range of interests. So I am a big proponent of media hygiene, which mm. is part of what you're describing there, but I had never thought of it explicitly in the context of inclusivity. And what you're talking about is inclusive media habits. Absolutely, and you can do it across any demographic as well. So I explicitly follow on Twitter some black queer journalists because they tend to engage in topics that just would not occur to me. I explicitly follow some Native Americans and indigenous community tweeters in, in Canada. On Reddit, I explicitly join certain communities for diversity of tech representation. That's and other things because that's the only way you're going to be exposed to those voices. And the only thing worse than not having a diverse view is listening to one source and assuming that's the whole of the diversity mm -hmm. representation. And so you need to get multiple voices even around what we think of as a single type out, of diversity. A single outgroup. Single yeah. outgroup, exactly. Well yeah. said. We could keep talking. For um, hours and hours and hours. hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time it's and my for your sharing your expertise with us. I love what you're doing here and it's a privilege to be a part of it. Thank you. Wow. I have to say that Mekki's answers to the five rapid fire questions blew me away. What a fascinating guy. Smart too. If you want to connect with Mekki, I included his links in the show notes on the talkabouttalk.com website under the podcast tab. There's also a link to the book that he mentioned, the Open Organization. As promised, I'm now going to summarize everything we covered in this episode. And again, this summary and the transcript are also in the show notes. Are you ready? The term open source is derived from source code and open source software. Open source strategy is a strategy that's dependent on collaboration between individuals and organizations, including competitors, to develop a collective good that's useful to all of them possibly in different ways, such that no single individual or organization can restrict the use of that good by others. Restrict or restriction is the key word here. Decades ago, engineers were using open source as a strategy, collaborating to write code that was unrestricted in terms of those who used it. Open source is the opposite of power. 
No one has exclusive power over the thing that we're cooperating on. That's why regulators love open source. Open source reduces fear of collusion, and it adds value. How does it add value? Well, when firms collaborate through open source, they save money that they would have spent creating and protecting things that don't matter. Instead, the firms can spend money on the unique value that their firm delivers. The analogy that helps here is the splitting of the pie. When firms collaborate through open source strategy, they reduce their costs and focus their resources on their unique value add, which grows the whole pie, right? And if you think about it, if each firm's value is truly unique, then the firms aren't fighting over the same pieces of pie at all, are they? Nowadays, you can say open source strategy or just open strategy, since it applies well beyond source code and technology. The source part of open source is a legacy. Mecky said that almost all of the Fortune 500 firms are now implementing open source strategy. Think academics giving their research papers away. Think communication coaches like me posting their podcasts for free. Think architects collaborating on materials. Think about organizations where functional silos have been replaced by true multidisciplinary work. Think about your work colleagues where competing for promotions has been replaced by team collaboration and team recognition. Open source strategy means inclusivity. Inclusive as in technology and engineering and business strategy all working together. Inclusive as in open. Inclusive as in free. Importantly though, free doesn't necessarily mean no cost. Free means liberty, freedom. It's accessible and you can see it. Mecky highlighted the frequent misunderstanding that open source is less secure because you can see it. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. Since it's open and we can see it, we can also verify that there are no problems. Mecky also highlighted at the end that technology is 10% of the equation and 90% of the equation is collaboration, helping, and communicating effectively. Did you catch that? Communication. So now then, back to the very beginning. Remember I summarized how to deal with someone at work who's displaying overtly competitive behaviors that hurt you in some way? First, you need to decide whether it's the culture or the person. If it's the culture, you might want to move on. If it's the person, chances are their overt competitiveness is due to a lack of confidence and or a scarcity mentality, trying to take some of your share of the pie. I hope that after learning about open source strategy, you feel better equipped to deal with this person. You can explicitly communicate and implicitly model your intentions to promote mutual benefit. All right, thank you again to Dr. Mekki McCauley. If you enjoyed this episode and you learned something, I encourage you to share it with your friends. Yes, be helpful, inclusive, and collaborative. I also strongly encourage you to sign up for the Talk About Talk email blog, where you'll get free weekly communication skills coaching from me delivered directly to your email inbox. Just go to the talkabouttalk.com website or email me directly and I'll add you to the list. As always, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Any ideas you have for future episodes or anything else, you can email me anytime at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. Thanks for listening and talk soon.